Bibles to Acts chapter 5, going to finish off the chapter this week. Acts chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 27. This is the inerrant word of God. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we uh, dig into it, that our hearts would be uh, set attuned uh, to your will, that uh, you would uh, guide us in our continued worship and our responses. Do bless uh, the uh, the preaching that I may not uh, uh, speak error Anoint my lips and quicken the word to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the uh, teachers that I went with on this last trip to India uh, started one of his lectures by outlining some of the different persecutions that he had heard that had gone on in the uh, group of about 100 men that we were with, and he had mentioned uh, the beatings that some of them received. Uh, some of their wives had been raped. Uh, one man had uh, been so destroyed, his leg, he's going to be a cripple for life. And this teacher uh, said that some people might tell you that all of these sufferings that you have gone through are worth it because of the results of your ministry. And he said, I'm here to tell you that those sufferings are not worth it. And the translator kind of did a double take and he said, could you repeat yourself? And he repeated again. He said, all of the sufferings that you have gone through are not worth it if you are looking for the outcome. And the translator looked a little bit dubious, but he translated it anyway. 
And then the teacher went on to say, if you're looking for what you can get out of your suffering in this life, it is not worth it. In fact, some of you are tempted to give up right now. And he had, they had told him they were tempted to give up. But he said, God is worth it, and his kingdom is worth it. In fact, it's worth not only the sufferings that you have gone through, God is worth far, far more. <clears throat> he said, if you're waiting for the results in this life, there are going to be times where it's simply not going to seem like it is worthwhile, and you're going to be tempted to give up. On the other hand, if you focus on the greatness of God, and you are captured by the awesome splendor of Christ, then all of the sacrifices and more that you go through will be worth it. And then he went on to talk about the difference between a God-centered and a God-focused ministry and a man-centered and a man-focused ministry. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the sacrifices that you have made on behalf of your uh, wife and on behalf of your children are not always worth it. Now, the sacrifices that you make on behalf of your husband are not always worth it. Now, sometimes they may seem to be worth uh, the sacrifices, but uh, even though we are not going through real vigorous uh, persecution in this country, all of us are called to make some sacrifices, and there are going to be times when you're going to wonder, is it worth the sacrifices that I've made? Here I have poured my life out for my husband, and he still hasn't changed. He's still as ornery as ever, or he's still as unresponsive uh, as ever. Or here I have worked and worked and worked in my children's lives, and they're not turning out the way that I want them to turn out, or I have sacrificed on behalf of my neighbor. <clears throat> <clears throat> the question is, will you give up, or will you glory in the privilege that you have of suffering for the sake of Christ? These disciples had gone through an awesome transformation at uh, Pentecost. Uh, prior to Pentecost, uh, they had uh, fled from Christ, and it's no wonder they had been arguing who was going to be at the right hand of Christ, who was going to be at the left hand. They had said, hey, we've given up all. What's in it for us, Lord? And you've got to hand it to them. Uh, they had a lot of deferred gratification. They had stuck it out with Christ far longer than any of the other disciples had stuck it out, but when it looked like they were going to be losing everything that had motivated them, that they had hoped for, then they bailed out and they all fled. Uh, they ran. There does come a point at which you realize that the sacrifices are too much to be worth it if your goals are only uh, in terms of uh, the things that go on here on earth. They made an economic decision, as it were, and they fi figured, we better bail out. <laughs> this is the time uh, to bail out. And for every person, that's going to be different. Uh, everybody's got a different price that they put on that. But I would say to you, if you are motivated only by whether your sacrifices will pay dividends in time, that there may be times when your sacrifices simply will not seem worthwhile. What made these disciples have boldness and courage and hope and enthusiasm uh, in the face of losing everything, was that Pentecost had ushered them into a much higher motive for living. You might call it, a, um, if you want to think in economic terms, a bigger payoff. Uh, their hearts had been so drawn to the glories of Christ and the greatness of Christ's kingdom and his cause that all of the sufferings he called them to seemed well worthwhile. 
Now, last week we looked at Satan's attempt to bind the Word of God physically and to intimidate the disciples. They were not successful in that. Today we're going to be looking at their attempt to use legislation to intimidate them and to bind the Word of God as well. Look at verses 27 through 28. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Well, there was no question about that. You know, earlier on in the week, they had made that legislation. But the question was, did they have the authority to do so? Uh, If they did not, then this was not a legitimate law. It had no force. Now, the trouble was the Sanhedrin wasn't uh, concerned about thinking by what authority. They considered themselves to be the highest authority. Now, they did have a constitution, and this was unconstitutional. It was not a law that was legitimate, and yet they were seeking to impose that law anyway. And so they falsely accused the apostles of insubordination. Now, this has been the strategy in America for the last 30 years with regard to abortion. It's been the strategy in America for other things for many more years beyond that. Uh, Federal boards and agencies try to uh, pass unconstitutional laws. Congress does the same. Supreme Court, unfortunately, has done the same. Uh, Jonathan told me a joke that he had heard of how many branches of government do we have at the federal level, and he said, uh, well, it's the executive and the legislative and the legislative, but actually it's turned out that it's the legislative, legislative and legislative. All three branches are trying to uh, make law. Uh, The IRS has on more than a dozen occasions that I'm aware of, maybe there's more than that, sought to take away properties from churches for preaching against abortion, sodomy, and uh, on one occasion it was um, uh, American economic policies. And this, despite the fact that the Declaration of Independence complains about exactly those kinds of usurpations by King George. Uh, This, despite the fact that the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. And uh, it seems like there's a lot of attempts to abridge free speech and the practice of religion Uh, Not just in schools, but in other places. You probably hear reports all the time about students who are told they can write an essay. Anything controversial, they can do it on any other religion, but not Christianity. Gideons cannot pass out Bibles. Uh, We live in a twisted society when the president is allowed to publish a day of, uh, of prayer, a proclamation, but several schools in America refuse to hand out that proclamation because they say it's an unconstitutional Uh, violation of the separation of church and state clause. It's like, where is that clause in the Constitution? But anyway, uh, it's a strange thing. A teacher was forced to take a verse out of a collection of famous quotations by teachers. A college student was told by a faculty member that it was illegal for him to tell anybody that he was a Christian outside of his church. What? Where did that come from? Uh, Many claim that the law does not allow the scriptures to be brought into any public forum. It's an attempt to legislate restrictions on Christianity. The second accusation is that they were engaging in subversive uh, propaganda. Verse 28 goes on to say, Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, I find it interesting they were even willing to admit this. 
Uh, here are the greatest enemies right now of Christianity admitting that the gates of hell are not prevailing against the church. Uh, the doctrine is going forward. And to this day, we really need to have this attitude that we want the word of God to fill our city, not just keeping it within our four walls, but any way that we can getting the word out there. Now, that will bring backlash. You cannot advance Christ's kingdom forward unless it's at the expense of Satan's kingdom, right? I mean, just simple logic tells you that, which means he's not going to appreciate that. Now, one of the things about the first century Jews that was interesting was that they did allow quite a variety of opinions to exist within Judaism. Uh, there was some bickering and fighting that went on between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians, but they did a lot of things together still. Essenes, they couldn't stand anybody. They went off and lived by themselves. But amongst the dozen or so different viewpoints within Judaism, for the most part, they allowed people to teach whatever they wanted to teach so long as there was not undue influence. I think one of the unpardonable sins that these rulers held to was that you cannot upset the status quo. And I think nothing has changed since that time. That's always tended to be the case. The attitude of the Sanhedrin was, hey, we'll leave you alone if you just keep your mouth shut. That was basically their attitude. And 21st century humanists many times have exactly the same attitude in our culture. One editorial was complaining about even watered-down creationism being sought, taught alongside of uh, evolutionism in the uh, government school, she said, there shouldn't be any creation, just evolution should be taught. But her whole article was defending that in the name of freedom and of liberty. Now, let me quote a little section from this amazingly stupid editorial. <laughs> Speaking of a, a school district that had just allowed a little bit of creationism to be mentioned alongside of, uh, uh, you know, completely dominating evolutionary curriculum, she said this, these poor children are being denied the most basic right of childhood freedoms, the right to imagine and learn. Someone should remind these parents that the law of the land still requires that we educate our children in qualified schools with qualified teachers. They may rant and rave against humanism and feminism and any other ism on Sunday, but come Monday, the children belong in school. Now, isn't that what the Sanhedrin was saying? You can believe whatever you want to believe in private, but don't be bringing your, your viewpoints, you know, into the public sphere. We've got a monopoly of viewpoint pushing, is basically what they were saying. And this idea that Christianity is propagating subversive propaganda is powerfully felt in China and in other uh, communist, uh, communist countries. The reality is all teaching is, is subversive. Of course I'm subverting. I'm trying to subvert error, right? And that lady's trying to subvert truth. The only difference is she wants the government to come alongside and hinder any free market competition amongst ideas, right? And so she wants to play unfair. But that was uh, another accusation that uh, they, they gave, uh, the accusation of subversive propaganda. The third accusation is in effect accusing them of treason. They said, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, the curious thing about that is, isn't that exactly what they said to Pilate? His blood be upon us and upon our children. That's exactly what they said. Their attitude, in effect, was either Christ and his followers are worthy of death or we and our children are worthy of death. 
And uh, they were saying that Christ truly was guilty of treason, which by definition, anybody who's advocating for what Christ stood for was guilty of treason. And there are many countries where Christians are charged with treason. It's a false accusation, but boy, it can sure intimidate. Now, what's the response of the apostles? Well, first of all, they bring up the issue of high, higher authority. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, this implies several things, and I should have put it into your outlines, but I didn't, and uh, we're going to go through this a little faster than you can write. But let me quickly outline, just think through these things. This verse implies that God's law trumps man's law. Uh, it implies that men have no authority unless that authority is delegated by God. Thirdly, it implies that men should rule by God's law, not by men's law. Fourth, it certainly implies that when the civil government forbids something God commands or commands something that God forbids, that that law is null and void at the moment that it was created. Uh, fifth, it implies that all human governments have limited jurisdictions. And Peter was actually quite explicit on that in uh, chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. When they enacted the law, he, he indicated the state had no jurisdiction to do that and indicated that if they did do it, what they were doing is overthrowing God's authority upon which all other human authority rests. And so they did not have the jurisdiction. Six, I want you to notice the little word ought in verse 29. They considered their disobedience to the Sadducees not just permissible, they considered it to be a moral imperative. We ought to obey God rather than men. They had no choice but to disobey. This is, by the way, one of several passages that uh, Americans during the War for Independence appealed to when they said that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Uh, they understood that principle. Now, many people struggle over that, and they say, now, wait a shake. Is it not a moral imperative to obey the king? And we say, yes, of course it is, but it is not without its limits. There is no human authority upon the face of the earth that has absolute power or absolute authority. Not even a father has absolute authority over his children. Now, Roman citizens thought they did. They thought they could kill their children at a whim, anytime that they pleased. But uh, God says, no, all authority is limited and it is delegated authority. During the foundations class, we've been going through Junius Brutus's uh, book, uh, A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. He was a Huguenot. Uh, he was a reformed um, a writer and a statesman who was giving the theological basis for why they were able to fight for their lives rather than just getting uh, slaughtered. It's a, a brilliant treatise. And I think every Christian needs to uh, own a copy of that and read it at least once uh, in their lifetime. One of the most influential books, uh, according to John Adams, the most influential book prior to the forming of America. And in that book, he shows the limits to government, the limits to obedience, when it's appropriate to resist, when it's not appropriate, what kinds of resistance you can have, what kinds uh, are uh, ungodly. But anyone who claims to have absolute authority, whether it's a father or a pastor or a, um, a civil magistrate, is actually claiming to be God. That's, in effect, what he is claiming to be, and God declares war on such people. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12. I'll just give you one brief example in the book of uh, Acts uh, with regard to a civil magistrate, and beginning to read at verse 20. 
Now Herod, this is about Herod, uh, uh, Herod Agrippa I. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Most Christians in early America saw very clearly the limited jurisdiction that the state had and recognized, for example, the evil of church incorporation because they recognized that that put the church under the jurisdiction of the state uh, every bit as much as the Anglican church was under the king in England. And they resisted that. Biblically, church and state are separate governments with separate jurisdictions. Not the church over the state, not the state over the church. They are separate jurisdictions. And the early church very clearly recognized this when they refused to incorporate and call Caesar Lord. The authorities were flabbergasted. They had not had this kind of inflexibility with any of the other religions. I mean, they saw themselves as being broad-minded. You know, most other empires forced their religion upon people. We're broad-minded. We'll let any religion be out there so long as they get a licet, that's a license, they get incorporated and call Caesar Lord, that he has the authority over that religion. And these people were saying, what is wrong with you? We'll give you freedom of religion. Just get a license. And the early church absolutely refused. And they saw this as being such an important issue, they were willing to go to the stake for it rather than to compromise that because it would remove the, the authority of Christ directly over the church. It would destroy jurisdiction, the separate jurisdictions concept. There's many things that were at stake. Now, the Jews, who should have know, known better, said, we have no Lord but Caesar. Remember at the crucifixion? Our cry needs to be ex exactly the opposite. We have no Lord but King Jesus, uh, but God. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, the reason uh, for that is that all magistrates are servants. Matthew thir uh, Romans 13 talks about their, their servants. We still speak of them being public servants, don't we? We don't speak of them as being lords. Now, it's ironic that Romans 13 is the passage that tyrants like King George appealed to when they said that uh, uh, citizens have to give blind, unyield, uh, complete obedience to whatever the king says because the king stands in the place of God and his word is law. Uh, rex lex. And uh, people said, no, the king is under law. Lex rex. The law is king, not the king is law. And um, uh, Romans 13 talks exactly the opposite of what some of these tyrants have tried to make it say. In verse 1 it says, For there is no authority except from God. Or literally, there is no authority if not from God. That means if you can't show the authority that you have for doing the things that you are doing as coming from God, you have no authority. There is no authority if not from God. And then that verse goes on to say, that uh, God delegates this authority. He appoints them not so that they can serve themselves, but serve him. Verse 2 indicates the purpose of the government was to impose the ordinances of God. Verse 3 indicates how that authority should be exercised. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. 
Now, if God doesn't define those terms, they can, be, they can mean anything you want it to mean. Abortion can be good. Homosexuality can be good. God's the definer of what is good and evil. Verse 4 says that the ruler is God's servant to you for good. And so what Peter, in effect, is saying here is the Sanhedrin has turned that whole process completely upside down. They don't see themselves as being accountable. Well, let's move on. Let's look at Peter's answers to these three charges by showing, in reality, it's the Sanhedrin who is guilty of all three of those charges. Look at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging on a tree. Now, if God had sided with Jesus, he has raised him up, then the Sanhedrin is guilty of murder of their king, therefore of treason. Secondly, they were really the ones who were guilty of insubordination. Verse 31 says, Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. Um, And if he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the universe as the prince, then in reality, these are not only guilty of treason and murder, but also insubordination. And finally, the answer of the charge to subversive indoctrination is, hey, we are ambassadors of this king. Uh, He says to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, if that is true, then the Sanhedrin, who is undermining the prince, is guilty of uh, subversive propaganda with their false doctrine, with their false laws. Now, that may seem just incredibly bold. But if you read the literature of the Reformation, and actually er earlier, you'll see this this was the, the way that the church gave a prophetic testimony to magistrates over the last 2,000 years. Junius Brutus describes the responsibilities of citizens and kings this way. He says, you can look at the covenants that God made with Israel in the Old Testament, and you're always going to notice two things. You're going to notice two sides to the covenant. First, God makes the covenant with the king that he is responsible to uphold the covenant, uphold God's laws. Then you'll see that God also makes the covenant between himself and the people and the king. And he says, what this amounts to is that the king is responsible to uphold the laws of the kingdom, the God's laws, but the people are also responsible for that. And so if the king becomes a tyrant and he throws off God's laws, then the people are responsible to hold his feet to the fire, as it were, and to say, no, we are bound by the covenant, and to use interposition in in bringing about um, um, righteousness in the king's rule. And if the people become licentious and they want to throw out God's law, then the king is responsible to say, I'm not going to follow popular opinion. I'm going to follow God's word. Both of them were responsible to do this. Now, Junius Brutus points out, if this was not the case, then we've got all kinds of contradictions throughout the Old Testament. And he gives several examples. I'll just give you one. David uh, sinned against God, and he usurped uh, authority he did not have when he did that census of the people. It says Satan moved his heart to do that census. But then you go on to read God's destroying the people 
That just seems fundamentally unfair because Junius Brutus says one of God's principles of justice is he never puts to death the father for the sins of the children or the children for the sins of the father. They die for their own sins or they're punished for their own sins and yet here are the people suffering because of David's sin. And Junius Brutus says, "Uh uh-uh. The reason they were being punished is because of this twofold covenant. It's not just the king who was responsible and who was going to be judged, and David was judged, but the people themselves are judged because they had a responsibility of interposition. They had a responsibility to make sure the nation holds fast to this covenant and upholds God's laws. And it really is a, a brilliant a treatise that he, he gives. It doesn't matter if it's laziness, if it's fear of the king, the people through their representatives, at the very least, have a responsibility to the covenant. Our our second president of the United States said that not only was this influential on magistrates, this book was incredibly influential on keeping our citizenry from being a passive citizenry because they recognized everybody's going to be held accountable by God. Uh, If you ignore the treason of the king, you're guilty of treason. If you ignore the rebellion of the king, you're guilty of rebellion. You cannot just be passive. And so I really highly recommend that you read it. And if you don't have it, I'll send you a free PDF file where you can have it on your computer and uh, read it there. But in this chapter, no one else is standing up to these tyrants. And so the apostles bring a prophetic testimony against them. And I believe the church continues to have this role of a prophetic testimony to the state. There's been a number of times where our denomination has written excellent appeals and rebukes uh, to the Congress or to the president or to others when they have taken he and his stands on, on various issues. So that's one form of resistance. It's not the only form. If they had been magistrates, then there were many other forms that were open to them. But the point is... Each person, according to his station in life, has some responsibility to try to uphold the covenant uh, within our nation, and it has been overthrown. Um, uh, In Congress, you don't have to look very far in our civil government to realize that they have overthrown the Declaration of Independence, which is still binding in our land. They have overthrown the Constitution and the Constitution's call to common law, which is how many centuries, since uh, probably the 400s, it's the application of Christian case law down through history. They've overthrown that. And I think we need to have a citizenry that will do something about that. Now, at the time of the Reformation, John Knox rightly said, kings then have not an absolute power in their regiment to do what pleases them, but their power is limited by God's word. We need more Peters. We need more John Knoxes, as well as citizens who will stand behind them. Now, the majority response to these words can be seen in verse 33, and it's not very pleasant. When they heard this, they were furious. If you look in the margin, you'll see that literally it means they were sawn through, okay? They were furious and plotted to kill them. Now, the word furious indicates they were rather sensitive to this charge of being responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus. Their conscience is obviously at work and it is tearing them up. Now, you know what happens when you've pricked a person's conscience and their conscience is writhing like a snake on a fire? One of two things happens. Either that conscience dies to itself and repents and receives grace from the Lord or it strikes out at you. It, it, it attacks you, goes on the attack. 
And I have seen those same two responses to this day. Now, our job as pastors is to apply God's word in preaching and teaching and counseling and exhortation and rebuke and writing and all kinds of other things like that. Everything that we do, we're bringing the word to bear. Now, this means you can count on two things happening in a word-based ministry. On the one hand, you may see people who are brought to repentance and have life-transforming changes that happen to them. On the other side, you may find people hardened and coming on the attack against those who are the ministers of God's Word. And so there can be no neutrality when your conscience is being sawn by the Word of God. There can't be any. Uh, don't be surprised when people like Saul, who you would have expected would continue to go on hating the church and persecuting the church, get converted, become the greatest protectors of the church, and, and are submissive to the will of Christ. And don't be surprised when you find people like Demas and Crescens, who seemed like they were following Christ, and they get their consciences hardened, and they leave, and they go on the attack against the ministers of Christ. Do not be surprised at that at all. Uh, a sawn-apart conscience is a lively thing, and so expect some liveliness if you want the ministry of the Word to be going on in this church. Also remember that God is sovereign in the kinds of backlash that we receive. And so don't let us as pastors feel sorry for ourselves over that either, right? God's sovereign, and even that's for our good uh, when there is backlash. He's sovereign even over the hearts of kings. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, in the first half of this chapter, we saw that the officers went out to arrest them. They're so scared of the people, thinking they're going to get stoned to death. They're real cautious and nice. Would you please come with us? And uh, they're doing no violence. Now, a similar nervousness amongst these people makes them deliberate. Ooh, what's the safest way of killing these apostles? Not safe for the apostles, safe for us. How do we go about doing this? And it gives time for Gamaliel, a moderate, to urge them to go more slowly. Now, all of this, I think, is just orchestrated by God's providence. I should point out, Gamaliel was the teacher of the apostle Paul. We're told that in, I think it's Galatians, isn't it? Uh, but anyway, we're told somewhere in the New Testament that he's the teacher of Paul. He was the head of the Pharisees, a minority, and yet it was a very vocal and a very powerful minority. Uh, the Sadducees couldn't afford to ignore his counsel because if both the Christians and the Pharisees line up against the Sadducees in what they are doing, they're going to be in trouble. So they listen up. And Gamaliel urges moderation because he says that it's worked in the past. Let's just read verses 34 through 39. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And I think that in part was, people will resist. Their pride will get the better of them. They won't even listen to you if their pride's at stake. So he said, let's just take these out. Let's talk right on one-on-one -on -one here. And so he's talking with them, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. 
And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, we're not told what Gamaliel's motives were in doing this. We do know he was no friend of Christianity. That's a mistake some commentators have sometimes made, but uh, the best commentators said, no, there is no evidence whatsoever that he was a friend of Christianity. He was known as a moderate. He liked to play the sides off against each other, but he also was very indecisive. Uh, and it's good to know God can control even such people to slow down the advancement of humanism. I think that we can at least say this. Christians ought not to follow the advice of Gamaliel. I don't know how many times I've heard people quote this passage as to why we shouldn't take any action. No, this is not godly action. This is an ungodly person who is uh, giving this action. In effect, it amounts to this. We have no way, first of all, of knowing what is true or what is false. Secondly, time will tell whether it's true or not. Now, thirdly, if it does not grow, it is false. Well, what does that say about Old Testament Christianity, which did not grow in many periods of history? Uh, if it does grow and does succeed, it is true. Fourth, we should never take definitive action because we might just be on the wrong side on this thing and get in trouble. And so we need to leave ourselves some options. And that is exactly the way many people think. It's not biblical. Based on Gamaliel's advice, I don't think we would ever have been able to make a decision on whether some religions of the world were false or true religions. In fact, Islam, we'd say, I guess that must be blessed by God. It must be a good religion. Based on that philosophy, the majority is right. In fact, I think this is what was going on in Gamaliel's mind. He was probably thinking, whoa, have you seen the crowds out there? The majority out there seems to be siding with these Christians. We maybe made a mistake before. Let's slow down. Let's not uh, rock the boat here. And I think it was just a political move on, on his part. Now, <clears throat> there is no good reason why we should be pragmatists like Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel had a hard time taking a stand just like many pragmatists have a hard time knowing where to take a stand, and so they make a good case for not taking any stand. This should never be the position of, of Christians. The Bible says that the Scriptures are sufficient to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. Now, there may not always be a position that's comfortable that the Bible gives, it may not always be something that's popular or that you're going to like, but the Bible has the answers. It says that it's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. And so we can take definitive positions, and that's basically the coward's way out to say, yeah, you know, it's a tough question. We, we really shouldn't make any decision on this. No, study. Study more if you don't know. But the Bible gives us the basis for that. Some people feel comfortable never taking sides. The Pharisees were pros at that. And if you want to just get a little bit of a feel, go down to Creighton Library, get out the Talmud, and just flip anywhere in the Talmud, and you'll see this. Rabbi so-and-so said this, but Rabbi Shimei said this, but this rabbi said the other thing. And you can read for 100 pages. You never know what this particular writer thinks. He's just citing all of these different authorities and saying, well, maybe these different options are all true. And that's why Christ's teaching with such authority made such an impact upon the people. 
People do not tend to appreciate pragmatists. Uh, they want people of principle, even in government. I wish that some of these government officials would recognize that if they really took the even unpopular stances, but they stood by their word, they were men of principle, not politicians swayed by the wind, people would admire them. They would admire them even if they disagreed with them. Okay, where are we? Okay, the majority on the Sanhedrin are Sadducees. They're not Pharisees. And they're obviously persuaded by this speech into not killing the apostles. They think that's a wise course to go. So verse 40 begins, and they agreed with him. So Gamaliel's convinced them, let's not kill the apostles. But the Sadducees did not agree with Gamaliel that they could not take a judgment on this status as to whether they're right or wrong, whether God's on their side or not, or whether to leave them alone. Because the verse goes on to say, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, you know, that implies that they uh, weren't leaving them alone. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So it was a political agreement. And as so frequently happens in political agreements, you're holding many times to two contradictory positions. Uh, one commentator argued that the Sadducees realized, basically, that they couldn't do anything without the Pharisees. So they worked out this, this deal. If the Pharisees and the Christians lined up, they would have been in deep trouble. Derek Carlson said on this passage, the fact that they had the apostles beaten with rods means that they didn't agree completely with what Gamaliel said. That is, that this movement might be of God. For if they truly believed this, and we're going to wait and see if this group would continue before they decided whether it is a God of not or not, then they wouldn't have passed judgment. By beating these fellow Jews, they were saying, you are guilty. What were they guilty of? If blasphemy, then they should have been executed. But if not blasphemy, then what? It was obvious that they were beaten for speaking in the name of Jesus, for they then commanded the apostles not to speak in his name. But why were they not allowed to speak in the name of Jesus? Was it because Jesus was a blasphemer? If Jesus was a blasphemer, how do they know this? If Jesus was a blasphemer, then why didn't they execute those who were continuing the blasphemy? If Jesus wasn't a blasphemer, then why did they murder him? This wise group of elders was nothing but a confused mess. Thus, I believe that their agreeing with Gamaliel was purely a political thing. They believed that the apostles were a threat to them while they were alive, but to kill them would threaten their positions even more at the present time. So they agreed that it was best not to kill the twelve, but still treated them as guilty. It is only by completely relying upon the word of God that we can be saved from such foolishness in our thinking. And I say amen. We need to avoid such pragmatic foolishness in our thinking. Now let me end with just a couple of uh, comments about the apostles' response to this beating and to these threats. We see that they were not intimidated. The wind was not taken out of their sails. Uh, their spirits were not dampened. And the reason given by Luke is not that they considered the number of converts to be worth it or that they considered the church growth to be worth it or their position as apostles to be worth it. There comes a time where it doesn't matter how many accolades a pastor or some other person may get or how many positions are offered or what results are there, the pressures of standing for Christ just do not seem worthwhile. But the glory of knowing Christ 
in the fellowship of his grace and the fellowship of sufferings does make it worthwhile. Verse 41 speaks of their identification with Christ. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings is something that makes all of the pain and the suffering well worthwhile. And because I have uh, devoted an entire sermon to that, I'm not going to develop that here. But if you feel like giving up on the things you know God has called you to do, you're constantly tempted to give up. I would really encourage you to get out that sermon tape, or if you don't have it, get a copy of that sermon tape, and, uh, and meditate on what it means when Paul says that his life goal was to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. What does it mean when Jesus said that we should leap for joy when we are being persecuted, for so persecuted they the, 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 the prophets. And what does he mean when he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. See, our identification with Christ not only brings on the persecution, it enables us to rejoice in the midst of persecution. Secondly, there was total involvement with Christ. This was not their agenda. This was not their kingdom that they were building. They were driven by a cause that was far bigger than they were. Uh, verse 42 ends by saying, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah. Their lives revolved around his cause, and so should ours. When you have a cause that's huge and compelling, it motivates you. They were not intimidated into being quiet, and that is rather significant when you realize that they were beaten probably with the maximum number of lashes that they were allowed to give, which was 39 lashes. The word for beaten in verse 40 in the Greek means literally to flay or to take the skin off of an animal. It was a reference to a terrible beating that a person uh, would get. And so there's something unusual going on here when these people are beaten severely, and yet it does not dampen their spirits. And I think that something is that they saw the greatness of Christ's cause. They were driven by a cause that was greater than something that was their own agenda, and they knew Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, I saw the same motivation, keep my parents in missions. <clears throat> uh, even in the midst of dire circumstances, it gave them passion, it gave them enthusiasm. I saw the same motivation, enable Ethiopian evangelists to keep going back into danger. A uh, bunch of evangelists would be thrown into prison and there would be a whole new slew of evangelists that would take their place. When the missionaries left Ethiopia during World War II, uh, there were only two dozen Christians in Wilamo province. There were two or three others in another province. Hilton Hotels, uh, incredibly crowded, where if you have room to sleep on the floor, it's a mud floor that is so crawling with fleas and lice and bed bugs. Sometimes these Christians would come out of those prisons raw from head to toe from all of the bu bu bug bites that they were getting. 
Uh, they were beaten. Some of them had their eyes gouged out. Others were killed, and yet they continued with joy to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? What in the world would make people so crazy as to do something like that? I believe it was these two th- things. They were so identified with Christ, and they saw the cause of his kingdom that it drove them to continue on. Now, they didn't have much uh, training uh, and didn't have many Bibles. Uh, one man my dad knew... Um, had only chapter 5 of Matthew. They would divide the Bible up amongst all of these different evangelists, and everybody, that was his passport, you know. I got a Bible. You know, they got one chapter. And pity the people who had some of the chapters in the Old Testament. It's like, man, how do you build a church on this? But he had Matthew 5, and he established eight churches uh, during just a few years uh, after the missionaries left during uh, World War II. At the end of the war, there were 15,000 believers, and the gospel just kept growing and growing and growing. By the time my dad left his second station, that station, I think, had over 800 churches that had been established all over Ethiopia. The church was growing like crazy. These were men and women who identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, whose lives were totally involved with him. They did their work to God's glory. They had their weddings and their funerals to God's glory. And brothers and sisters, this is what I desire for you, that you would come to know Christ so well that it wouldn't matter how many persons come against you, persecutions come against you, it didn't matter what sacrifices you have to make, you would consider it well, worthwhile to do that and so much more. May it be. Father God, we thank you for the challenges of your word. And every time we come to your word, we recognize once again that we are cast upon your grace because apart from your grace, we cannot do this. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission. We cannot leap for joy when we are being persecuted. We cannot have this no dampening of our spirit when we are beaten. Father, we find our spirits dampened so easily with far lesser pressures that come against us. And we ask your forgiveness for that. Uh, We ask your forgiveness, Father, for the mothers who fail in their tasks or the fathers or the children who fail in the tasks that you have given to them because the tasks just do not seem worthwhile for what benefit they give. Help them, Father, to be so driven with a vision of what you have called us to, the greatness of your glory and of your kingdom and of the fellowship that we have with you that they would be uh, rejoicing at the privilege of laying down their lives for the cause of Christ in whatever callings that you have called us to. Father, give to us the kind of attitudes and the passions that these apostles had. Help us, Father, to bring prophetic uh, uh, rebuke and testimony to the tyranny that is going on in our land. And I pray that the word of God would fill our city, would fill this nation and have an effect, have an impact. But Father, we pray especially that you would bring reformation and revival to the church of Jesus Christ that is in desperate shambles. And we pray that rather than casting her out and setting her aside as salt that has lost its savor, that instead you would raise her up to be a a bride that uh, honors you with everything that she has and is devoted to you and willing to lay her life down for you. Father, I pray that you would transform us by the presence of your Holy Spirit and through the grace that Jesus Christ purchased, which we claim in His name. Amen.